can be seated. <clears throat> so on this, the first Sunday of Advent, we are going to begin a new four-week series in this little book called Ruth. And we're going to call the series Uncommon. As we will see over the next four weeks, this short story has all kinds of uncommon features about it. And the most prominent is actually quite on the surface, that two of the three main characters in this book are women. And this should immediately grab our attention. In fact, this is one of only two books in the entire Bible that is named after a woman. The other one being, as you will know, Esther. But this is the only book of the scriptures that is named after a non-Israelite. Ruth was a Gentile. She was a Moabite, a people whose origins were dubious at best. We can read about that in Genesis. And whose relations to the Israelites were spotty and tumultuous. They were seen as enemies more often than not. More than that, Ruth was a widow. And widows, at least in that society and time, were on the lowest position of the social ladder of the day. They were the least likely to be remembered or to make a difference in God's plan in the world. Yet it's her name that is born by this short but powerful little book. So why Ruth in the season of Advent, a season in which we are focusing on our hope that Jesus will come back and make all things new? This is what we long for as the church. Why would we study the book of Ruth during this season? Let me give you two reasons. First, this little story ends with these words in chapter 4. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. David. That is the seemingly insignificant lives and choices of these three unknown people in Bethlehem long ago in the days when the judges ruled as the book begins play a central role in the uncommon providence of God to bring about the advent of David and by extension the advent of great David's greater son, Jesus. Our hope in Jesus' return, that is, has a, a linear connection in time and history, to the events that are narrated for us in this book of Ruth, with what took place between Naomi and Ruth and Boaz long ago. A second reason is that uh, when we, with the church throughout history, when we cry out, come Lord Jesus, and that is the defining cry of the church, we long for Jesus to return and to make all things new. But when we cry out that cry, we do so basing our expectation on the character of God on his faithfulness and loyalty and kindness. And hesed is a key theme in the book of Ruth. This Hebrew word that implies love and mercy, loyalty and devotion, faithfulness and compassion. This word that implies one party acting on behalf of another without regard for the cost or the effect of how that action might benefit oneself. And we see this throughout the book of Ruth in the human characters of the story. But their actions, of course, point more deeply to the hesed of God, the covenant God of Israel, who is the hero of this story, even though largely behind the scenes. God is defined by hesed. In his revelation to Moses in Exodus 34, he says he abounds in hesed, this loyalty and devotion. And it's this dimension of God's character that grounds our hope 
as the people of God today. That God will remain faithful and kind and loyal and devoted to his people and his world. That he will one day come back in the person of the Son and consummate and complete the victory that he won for us long ago on the cross of Calvary. So among other things, my hope is that dwelling upon the hesed of God through the book of Ruth, seeing it played out in the relationships in this story, that this will encourage and strengthen our hope in the return of Jesus to make all things new. So Ruth, this book, it comes immediately after the book of Judges. The story that it narrates takes place, as we've seen in the time and the day when the judges ruled, and it comes just before the book of 1 Samuel. One of the themes of Judges is that God chooses to work through the weak things of the world. As my predecessor, Gordon Hugenberger, so ably taught in his series on the book of Judges about 10 years ago from this pulpit, the judges who deliver Israel are characterized by weakness. But this is intentional. This is part of the point of the book of Judges. It's to help us know that the true deliverer, the true judge, the true savior, the true redeemer is the God who works behind those judges who have inherent weaknesses and faults. It is God who is our savior and judge. And if Judges shows us this principle of God working through the weak in the halls of power, that is among the military and political leaders over Israel during the time of increasing degradation when Israel was becoming more and more like her Canaanite neighbors. Then the book of Ruth shows us this principle in the everyday, ordinary challenges of life. It is in these ordinary and everyday challenges that the uncommon features of this book come to the foreground. And we see that here, too, God in his inscrutable providence works through the weak. For what are Naomi and Ruth if not weak? God works through the weak to accomplish his saving purposes for the nation of Israel and ultimately for the sake of the world, the entire world. I think reading Ruth we could perhaps do no better and it's meant to be read in one sitting. We read the whole first chapter which felt long even today but I would encourage you throughout this series to spend time just reading it through the four chapters. It's not a very long book. But as we read this book, our response perhaps could be no better than what Paul says in Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. This book shows us that in a beautiful way, in a surprising way. And I'm excited for us to dig into it. So let's begin with chapter one today. And we'll do this in two parts. First, the dark canvas. And then secondly, the uncommon commitment. The dark canvas. We all know that when painters begin to paint, they like to paint on a blank canvas. But I'm calling this a dark canvas. By dark, I mean one filled with with difficulty and suffering and bereavement. In the first five verses of this book, the author of Ruth, and we don't know if this was a he or a she, takes us down into the depths of human suffering. So look with me at the text. Verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. This is hammer blow number one. There was a famine in the land. Now, it's a little ironic to talk about famine three days after Thanksgiving where most of us ate far too much. 
And most of us, honestly, in this nation don't know what it's like to live in a situation where food is in short supply. Some of you may, and certainly our brothers and sisters across the world, many of them do, stretching every last grain of wheat, stretching every last bit of milk in in ever-decreasing rations. Though it wasn't famine, I remember distinctly uh, reading Harrison Salisbury's 1969 work, 900 Days, The Siege of Leningrad, in which he tells the story of the three-year siege of Leningrad during World War II by the German army. And it's gut-wrenching. Because of the blockades around the city, the shortage of food gets worse and worse, and there are ever-decreasing rations. And there are regular deaths from starvation. The population of Leningrad goes from in the millions to something around 700,000 at the end of the three years because so many died from starvation. And it gives a grim impression of what famine must have been like or must be like. There's irony here, too, from the author because we read that this family was a man, that he was, this was a man of Bethlehem, and Bethlehem literally means house of bread. House of bread. This house of bread could no longer sustain this man and his family. So he takes his wife and their two sons and sojourns in the country of Moab, 50 miles to the east. Continuing in verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. The irony continues. This man's name is Elimelech, and Elimelech means God is king or my God is king. Certainly, it doesn't seem like God is king anymore to this man and his family. Where is God in all of this? And then we get hammer blow number two, refugees. The Ephrathite family from Bethlehem and Judah takes refuge in Moab and remains there. They are refugees in a foreign land. We've just heard about ministry, our ministry, growing ministry, to hopefully take care of Afghan refugees in Boston and greater New England. And in light of this, I've been talking to our kids lately about how challenging, just trying to enter into the shoes of a refugee, how challenging this situation must be, leaving behind jobs and livelihood and homes and land and customs and languages and familiarity and everything else and fleeing from their homeland because of unrest, in Elimelech's case, because of famine, to a foreign place with a foreign language, with foreign customs, and trying to start over. In this new land, none of your advantages or education or skills will at least immediately pay off or pay benefits. It's an inherently insecure place to be. And that was the situation for Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Kilion. Then verse 3, things get darker. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Hammer blow number 3, Elimelech dies. To become a widow in that day was to become exposed and vulnerable. It still leads to a kind of vulnerability and loss in today's world. But in that patriarchal culture of the ancient world, it was far more significant than it is even today. In fact, the Old Testament law goes far to protect widows. And God himself describes himself in Psalm 68.5 as a protector of widows because, obviously, widows were vulnerable. They were easy prey for those who were unjust and greedy. And so God's law protects them. God himself protects them. 
So here is Naomi now, bereaved and vulnerable. This is mitigated in her case, at least in part, by the fact that she has two sons who can protect her and who can produce heirs for the family of Elimelech. But you know where this is going. Turn with me to verse 4. These, that is, the two sons, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The sojourn, taking refuge in Moab, turned into ten years. Ten long years. And this is hammer blow number four. It's easy to miss, but these were ten long years marked by barrenness. Ruth's barrenness and Orpah's barrenness. No children, no grandsons were born to Naomi to carry on the family name. And we can imagine the disappointment and despair that sets in in this foreign land during those long 10 years. But then we get hammer blow five and six. Malon dies, that's number five. Kilion dies, that's number six, leaving Naomi not only husbandless, but now sonless and grandsonless as well. Without sons, in a culture that practiced patrilineage, Elimelech's family now teeters on extinction. And this was the worst kind of tragedy for a family in Israel. Naomi is now simply called by the author, if you caught it at the end of verse 5, the woman. Implying that she has lost even her identity now. Bereft, bereaved, grieving, and at the lowest place that she can be. In five short verses, as this story opens, the dark canvas has been communicated with utter clarity in a kind of staccato fashion, almost in a seemingly uh, insensitive way. And for these reasons, what we've read in these first five verses, Naomi is often compared to Job. She's seen as a female Job figure in the Old Testament. But her situation seems to be even worse than Job's. Even though they didn't always give the right advice or good advice, Job at least had his wife and his friends to comfort him in his suffering and despair. But Naomi is basically alone. She has only her two foreign daughters-in-law around her. And the three of them widowed together are the archetype of vulnerability and weakness. It's hard to imagine the canvas getting any darker And we're meant to feel the despair and the anguish of Naomi in this situation. In fact, in the dialogue that ensues between Naomi and Ruth and Orpah on this road, this unnamed road between Moab and Judah, we hear her anguish in her own words. In fact, dialogue is one of the main literary features of the book of Ruth. It takes, uh, comprises over half of the verses of this book. There's a small glimmer of hope in verse 6, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Perhaps there's better days coming. And so Naomi, in light of that news in verse 7, and her two daughters-in-law went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But then in verses 8 and 9, we begin to see the depth of Naomi's bitterness and difficulty. She pleads with her daughters to return to Moab, their home, the place that they left. She knows that she cannot do them hesed, anymore. She cannot show them kindness anymore. She'll be in no position to care for them. Remember, because Ruth and Orpah were Moabites and Naomi is an Israelite, if they return to Judah with her, they will be foreigners in a foreign land. And Naomi knows what that's like personally. She knows the difficulty of that, having been a foreigner in Moab. 
She knows how vulnerable they will be, and so she speaks and introduces and, and tells them to go back. And in doing so, she introduces this great theme of the book of Hesed. Go, return, each of you, she says, to, your mother's, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly. That is, may the Lord with you do Hesed. May he deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. We believe then that Ruth and Orpah had stayed with Naomi after their husbands had died to care for her, even though they were no longer obligated to do so. But they had. They had been faithful to her, and she asks for the Lord to show them kindness as they have shown her kindness. Then in verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Again, this feels a little strange. We have to remember we're entering a culture long ago that's not like ours, and to put so much stock in having a husband seems almost uh, just kind of embarrassing in a way for us to think about. But this was, we have to remember this was a patriarchal society and culture in which a woman's future and security and rest and peace were bound up in her being able to be married and to be connected to a man. It's not so much the case today, thanks be to God, but in that day and age, this was everything. And so Ruth's, or Naomi's heart for her daughters-in-law is, go back to Moab, she says in verse 9. The Lord grant that each of you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. It's in Moab, daughters-in-law, that you will find the best possibility for a new start, a future and security. I can offer you nothing. Go back. There's weeping and tears on this road between Moab and Judah. We read about them in verse 10. She kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. You know, Naomi's name means pleasant. And we have to think that their attachment to her, even in these awful circumstances, was because of how pleasant she really was. They cling, they, they, they say, we want to go back with you. But she doubles down in her response in verses 11 through 13. Turn back, my daughters, she says in verse 11. Turn back, my daughters, she says in verse 12. And then she plays these hypotheticals. Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? I am too old to have a husband, verse 12. If I should, so, so she's saying, look, I don't have any sons in my womb, and I'm past the age of childbearing. It's not possible for me anymore to provide for you what you need, so get away from me. I'm nothing but bad news for you. Go home. Go back. Even if I should have a husband this night, she says, and should bear a son, would you wait for a couple of decades to marry them? That's ridiculous. The answer, of course, is no. No, my daughter, she says, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Go home. Your best chance for marriage is back in Moab. When they get back to Bethlehem later in chapter 1, she tells the women of Bethlehem, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? We can admire Naomi for her honest lament, can't we? In her situation of darkness and despair. And even in some way for her yieldedness to the sovereign hand of the Almighty. But here we are, this dark canvas. It's dark indeed. We've all been around a fire, a fire pit, when the fire seems to have gone out. And you put your hands up near it and see, is there any warmth left? And we can feel the warmth escaping from this situation more and more. It's a dark place. Maybe some of you are here and you're in a pretty dark place this morning. 
Maybe you feel like the hand of the Almighty is against you. That there's been bereavement. Perhaps loss of work. Some kind of unfulfilled hope or dream. And you feel like this is just the end. There's really no hope here. You feel like Naomi just wanting to raise your fist to God and protest and lament. One of the powerful realities that the book of Ruth teaches us is that there is really no situation that is so grim and so dark in which God cannot be present and work his mighty power. And this leads us then to the second point, uncommon commitment. It is this dark canvas that helps to highlight the uncommon commitment of Ruth, which comes next. Just like the dark night sky illuminates the stars, and we realize this when we're out of the city and away from the lesser lights, that the, 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 the natural light of the stars are the brighter that the darker the night can be. This dark canvas of Naomi and Ruth's situation highlights the brilliant light that is to come from the Lord and from Ruth in verses 16 and 17. After Naomi pleads, Orpah leaves. She does the sensible thing. She does the common thing. She does the expected thing. She does the thing that her mother-in-law tells her to do. And she returns. She was in the same home that Ruth was for the same amount of time. One of these women turns and returns to Moab. The other does quite the opposite. We read in verse 14, which contrasts Orpah and Ruth. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. That word for clung there in verse 14 is the same word used in Genesis 2, 24, that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This implies extreme loyalty and devotion and commitment. Ruth clung to her, and yet even though she clings to her, Naomi continues her advice to leave, and she points to Orpah walking away and says, look what your sister's doing. She's doing the right thing. Ruth, go back like she did to her people and her gods. Return. That's where your greatest hope is. But then Ruth says these words in verses 16 and 17. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is hesed on display, that kind of loyalty and devotion that goes beyond what is customary or expected to something far greater, that kind of loyalty and devotion that marks the God of Israel, shown now from Ruth to Naomi. Remember, Ruth is bereaved herself. Ruth is barren and a widow. She is heading toward a land that is not familiar to her, in which she will be vulnerable and exposed to danger as a foreigner. And she is making a commitment to a woman older than her who also is bereaved and who can offer her nothing in return. Ruth, seemingly against all sensibility, shuts the door on any thought of herself and says to Naomi that she will stand by her And she takes her commitment to Naomi even beyond Naomi's own life, which will be shorter than Ruth's likely, and says, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And she seals this with an oath. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is an all-in commitment. To the end of her days, Ruth says to Naomi, I'm with you. And this is the spark. That little glimmer of light that bursts into the darkness the little bit of warmth 
that's in the fire pit. In this otherwise dark canvas, this is a wonderful ray of light and warmth. You know, Ruth is saying something more than just, hey, Naomi, I'm committed to you. There's something deeper that's going on here. She's saying more fundamentally, I'm with the God of Israel. For this moment on the road somewhere between Moab and Judah, in this hopelessness, this reveals Ruth's reckless faith. This uncommon commitment is at its core a conversion in Ruth. From the God of Moab to the God of Israel, to the Lord. And this conversion reflects in the darkest of places that God is at work among the most unlikely of people, in the most unlikely of contexts. God is at work, for there is no one to attribute the faith of Ruth to but God himself. And Ruth's faith shines brightly in this dark moment. At the center of her statement is this phrase, your God, my God. It's all the more amazing when we realize that Naomi has just been testifying against the Lord, the God of Israel, saying that his hand has been set against her. Yet Ruth, undeterred by Naomi's bitterness, has no doubt learned of the Lord during her ten years in this household. She had come to see his ways and the family to learn of his laws, much like Orpah had as well. But Orpah didn't believe. Orpah turned back to Moab. But Ruth, Ruth, she confronts the choice. In the words of Sinclair Ferguson, her choice was this, Yahweh plus nothing in Judah. Everything minus Yahweh in Moab. And Ruth, inexplicably, by the mercy of God, chooses Yahweh. She is like the one who sells all that he has and goes and buys the field with the treasure hidden in it. Having that treasure, she is now free to offer her life to her mother-in-law in an act of hesed. Ruth is one to emulate here, this uncommon commitment. It implies a total departure, doesn't it? Like Abram. Back in Genesis 12, she is going to leave land and family and all that is familiar to embrace the Lord. This is what true faith requires in you and me even today. A total renunciation, a total abandonment. Shutting the door on Moab, on the gods of this age that promise life but deliver nothing but enslavement and death. Ruth abandons Moab. She puts her hands to the plow. And doesn't look back. At least Abram's departure from the familiar is buttressed by the promise of God that he will bless him and make him a father of many nations as he departs Haran. Ruth's departure from Moab is accompanied by no such promise, by no such word. It is a much darker situation where Ruth the Moabite clings only to Naomi an older and bereaved widow who is in the depths of agony and grief. In the face of such bleak prospects, one can only surmise that Ruth was animated by what the author of Hebrews wrote about faith in Hebrews 11, verse 6. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Ruth must believe that this God about whom she has learned from her in-laws, this God will reward those who seek him. And so she steps out in faith, turns her back on the familiar, 
of her faith in this moment, we have no doubt but to believe that Jesus would say, as he said of the centurion, another Gentile's faith in Matthew 8, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Ruth is to be emulated. Orpah is the one that's easy to follow, the sensible, common choice. Orpah, if you like, is the wide and easy road. Ruth reflects the way of faith, the narrow and hard road that leads to life. And Ruth's example leads us to ask some questions. Have we left the lifeless idols of this age in totality, separating ourselves from the corrosive worship of money, of money and power? Have we left the native land of our sin and entered by the narrow gate onto the way of life? Have we turned our backs on Moab and its false worship and set our hearts resolutely on the new Jerusalem and the king above all. This is how we ready ourselves for his return in the season of Advent. I want to conclude by saying not just, hey, let's emulate Ruth, which is a good thing to say, but by pointing to the fact that Ruth's uncommon commitment points us to the uncommon commitment of one even greater than Ruth one whose resolution was more than Ruth's, and one whose sacrifice was even greater. Ruth abandoned the familiar of Moab for the sake of Israel's God and for Naomi, and she goes to Bethlehem. Jesus abandoned the familiarity of his heavenly throne, of his fellowship with the Father, and enters into human flesh and goes to Bethlehem. Ruth clings to Naomi. Jesus clings to you, and to me. He becomes flesh. He enters into our skin and becomes one of us. Ruth's departure was marked by only the likelihood of heartache and insecurity and pain and humiliation and loss as she clung to Naomi. The dark canvas of Naomi's life was likely leading nowhere for Ruth, but she goes anyway. Jesus clings to us, not with just the possibility of heartache, in pain and humiliation and loss, but with their utter guarantee. Jesus is guaranteed pain and humiliation and suffering and death itself. Where Naomi gave Ruth no prospect of future life, the only prospect that we offered to Jesus was certain suffering and death. What Ruth knew as a possibility, Jesus knew as a certainty. And the dark canvas of Naomi's suffering compares palely, in a slight way, to the dark canvas of our sin. But in faithfulness to the Father, Jesus comes to us, clings to us, abandons his heavenly throne, and enters into our situation at Bethlehem. He shows us what Hesed really looks like, coming in loyalty, faithfulness, and devotion, a devotion that cannot be matched, a price that cannot be exceeded, to those who would only respond to him with betrayal and sleepiness and arguments over who is the greatest and greed and hypocrisy and so on. If Ruth's hesed was a streak of light under the black canvas of Naomi's world, then Jesus's hesed is the sun rising into the world of darkness and the light by which every man, woman, and child can walk. Ruth's hesed, even if Naomi couldn't see it, gives some glimmer of hope. Jesus's hesed is our hope. 
He came to die. He will come again to reign. Ruth's uncommon commitment to the Lord and thus to Naomi merely points us to Jesus' more uncommon commitment to his Father and thus to you and to me. Only when we see this, only when we see his commitment, his asset, his loyalty and devotion, are we then changed to emulate such devotion to God and to others. We are called to be like Ruth, yes. To be like Jesus, yes. But to be this way, we must realize that Jesus was first like Ruth to us. He entered our darkness. He clung to us. He brought the light where there was no light, at great cost to himself. Do you know this Jesus? Have you turned to him as king? This greater Ruth washes us, renews us, becomes one with us, that we might not continue in darkness, but that we might have the light of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We thank you for this amazing story long ago that shows us the depth of your love for your people. What an amazing woman we have to study in Ruth. What an amazing Savior we have to know in you. This Advent season, we pray, O oh Lord Jesus, that you would draw us nearer to you, that you would deepen faith and breathe out new life upon us, that we would be a people ready for your return. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.